Chapter 7 And so all Israel shall be saved. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, There shall come out of the Sion the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Romans 11.26 This is one of the great unfulfilled prophecies of Scripture. More than eighteen centuries have rolled around since Paul wrote these words. During that period, many marvelous and unexpected events have taken place. The world has often been convulsed and turned upside down. Empires and kingdoms have risen and fallen. Nations and peoples have decayed and passed away. Visible churches have disappeared and no longer have influence in the world. But, as of yet, Paul's prediction is still not accomplished. All Israel shall be saved remains yet unfulfilled. To a plain man, not hampered by the interpretation of tradition, the words of this prophecy appear very simple. It's not like the temple which Ezekiel saw in a vision, a dark and obscure thing, of which we may say, as Daniel said of another vision, I heard, but I understood not. Daniel 12, 8. It's not presented to us under the veil of emblems, like the seals, trumpets, files, and beasts in Revelation, about which men will probably never be of one mind until the Lord comes, and the wisest commentator can only conjecture. It is nothing like this. The sentence before us is a simple, direct proposition, and I firmly believe it means exactly what it appears to mean. Let us analyze it. And so, that means, as Parkhurst says, and then, then at length. It is an expression of time rather than manner. It is like Acts 7 8, and so Abraham begat Isaac, and 1 Thessalonians 4 17, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Israel shall be saved. That means the Jewish nation and people. It cannot possibly mean the Gentiles, because they are mentioned in the verse which directly precedes our text, in distinct contrast to the Jews. Blindness in part is happened to Israel, until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Romans 11.25 All Israel. This means the whole people or nation of the Jews. It cannot possibly mean a small elect remnant. In this very chapter, Israel and the election out of Israel are mentioned in contrast to one another. Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Romans 11, 7. Shall be saved. That means they will be redeemed from their present unbelief, and have their eyes opened to see and believe the true Messiah. They will be delivered from their low estate and restored to the favor of God, and will become a holy nation and a blessing to the world. The interpretation complete, I will now remark on four points regarding Israel that all friends of the Jews should keep fresh in their minds. Trite and familiar as they may seem to some, they are overlooked and forgotten by others. But I don't hesitate to say, that a firm grasp of these four points is the foundation of any real and abiding interest in the Jewish subject and cause. First, 
Consider the very peculiar past history of this Israel, which is one day to be saved. For the facts of that history, I will simply refer you to the Bible. Whatever modern skepticism may say, the story of Israel that the venerable old book records is as trustworthy as the story of any ancient nation in the world. We have no more basis for disputing its accuracy than for disputing the accounts of Egypt, Assyria, Persia, or Greece related by Herodotus. On the contrary, there is continually accumulating evidence that the Old Testament memoirs of the Jewish people are thoroughly trustworthy and true. Israel, we find, was for nearly fifteen hundred years more favored and privileged by God than any nation in the world. David might well say, What one nation in the earth is like thy people, even like Israel, whom God went to redeem for a people to himself? 2 Samuel 7.23 It was the only nation on earth to which God was pleased to reveal himself. Unto them were committed the oracles of God. Romans 3 2. While all other nations were permitted to walk in their own ways and to live in moral and spiritual darkness, the Jews alone enjoyed an immense amount of light and knowledge. The humblest priest in Solomon's temple was a far better theologian than Homer. Daniel, Ezra, and Nehemiah knew more about God than Socrates, Plato, Pythagoras, and Cicero all put together. The Jews were brought out of Egypt by miraculous intervention, planted in Palestine, one of the choicest corners of the earth, and fenced off and separated from other nations by peculiar customs and ceremonies. They were supplied with a moral law from heaven so perfect that even to this day nothing can be added to it or taken from it. They were taught to worship God with ceremonial rites and ordinances, which, however burdensome they may seem to us, were admirably adapted to human nature at that early stage of man's history, and calculated to train them for a higher dispensation. They were constantly warned and instructed by prophets, and protected and defended by miracles. In short, if mercies and kindnesses alone could make people good, no nation on earth should have been so good as Israel. While Egypt and Babylon and Greece worshipped the works of their own hands, Jews alone were worshippers of the one true God. But Israel, we find, was a people always prone to backsliding and falling away from God. Again and again they fell into idolatry and wickedness and abandoned the Lord God of their fathers. Again and again they were punished for their sins and delivered into the hands of the nations around them. Midianites, Philistines, Ammonites, Syrians, Assyrians, and Babylonians were rods by which they were repeatedly scourged. From the time of the Judges down to the end of Chronicles, we see a sorrowful record of constantly recurring rebellions against God and constantly recurring punishments. Never, apparently, was there a nation so stubborn and obstinate, so ready to forget instruction, so mercifully dealt with, and yet so unrepentant and unbelieving. Finally, we find Israel at the end of fifteen hundred years given up by God to a fearful punishment and allowed to reap the consequences of their own sins. 
After repeatedly rejecting God's prophets, they brought their wickedness to a head by rejecting God's only begotten Son. They refused their true King, the Son of David, and would have no king but Caesar. Then at last the cup of their iniquity was full, and Jerusalem was given up to the Romans. The holy and beautiful temple was burned. The Mosaic services were brought to an end. The Jews themselves were deprived of their land and scattered all over the earth. The whole history is wonderful, peculiar, and unlike anything else that is recorded and known by man. Never was a people so peculiarly favored and so peculiarly punished. Never did any nation at one time rise so high and at another fall so low. Never was there such a tremendous proof given to the world of the depravity of human nature and the incessant tendency of man to moral and spiritual decay. Those who are fond of telling us in modern times that kindness and love are sufficient to regenerate man and keep man good are always forgetting the mighty lesson that is taught us by the history of the Jews. The corruption of man is a far worse disease than your modern philosophers suppose. Israel was surrounded by mercies and loving kindnesses, yet Israel fell. Never forget that. Consider also the very peculiar position which Israel as a nation occupies at the present day. In handling this point, I will first simply refer to facts that are open to the observation of every intelligent and well-informed person on earth whether a believer or not. I will close my Bible for a moment, and I will not ask you to listen to texts. I will only offer facts and challenge you to deny them, if you can. I assert, then, that the Jews are at this moment a peculiar people and utterly separate from all other people on the face of the earth. They fulfill the prophecy of Hosea, The children of Israel shall abide many days without a king, and without a prince, and without a sacrifice. Hosea 3, 4. For eighteen hundred years they have been scattered over the globe, without a country, without a government, and without a capital city. They are strangers and aliens everywhere, often fiercely persecuted and vilely treated. Yet to this moment they continue as a distinct, isolated, and separate nation, far more so than any nation on the earth. The wonderful words of that strange prophet Balaam, which God obliged him to speak, are still literally true. The people shall dwell alone and shall not be reckoned among the nations. Numbers 23, 9. Of what other nation or people on earth can that be said? I answer confidently, none. When Nineveh and Babylon and Tyre and the hundred-gated Thebes of Egypt and Susa and Persepolis, and Carthage, and Palmyra were destroyed. What became of their inhabitants and subjects? We can give no answer. No doubt they were carried away captive and dispersed. But where are they now? No one can tell. When Saxons, Danes, Normans, and Flemings, under the persecution of Alva, and Frenchmen after the Edict of Nantes, settled down in our own England, what became of them? They were all gradually absorbed into our own population and have generally lost all their national distinctions, except perhaps in some cases their names. 
but nothing of the sort has ever happened to the Jews. They are still entirely distinct and never absorbed. Even in matters of relatively minor importance, there is to this very day an extraordinary separateness between the Jews and any other family of mankind on the face of the globe. Time seems unable to erase the difference. At the end of eighteen centuries, they are a separate people. Physically, they are separate. Who does not know the Jewish type of features? Even a man like Mr. Lawrence, in his work on physiology, is obliged to admit that the Jews exhibit one of the most striking instances of national formation unaltered by the most remarkable changes. In customs and habits, they are separate. The tenacity with which they cling to their Saturday Sabbath and the feasts of their law might put Christians to shame. Even in their political influence, they are strangely separate. The extraordinary financial power which they exercise in all the money markets of the world enables them to sway the actions of governments to an extent that few can imagine. In short, if there ever was a people distinct, marked, cut off, and separate from others, that people is Israel. Though they have lived among the Gentiles for eighteen centuries, they are still as distinct from the Gentiles as black is distinct from white, and seem to be as incapable of mixture or absorption as oil is incapable of being absorbed into or mixed with water. How do we account for this? How do we explain the unique and peculiar position that the Jewish people occupy in the world? Why is it that unlike the Saxons, Danes, Normans, Flemings, and French, this singular race, though broken to pieces like a wreck, still floats alone on the waters of the globe amidst its 1.5 billion inhabitants? How is it that after a lapse of 1,800 years it's not destroyed, crushed, evaporated, amalgamated, nor lost sight of, but lives to this day as separate and distinct as it was when the Arch of Titus was built at Rome. I have not the least idea how questions like these are answered by those who deny the divine authority of Scripture. In all my reading I never met with an honest attempt to answer them from the unhappy camp of unbelievers. In fact, it is my firm conviction that among the many difficulties of unbelief, there is hardly one more insurmountable than the separate continuance of the Jewish nation. It is a burdensome stone which your modern skeptical writers may pretend to despise but cannot lift or remove out of their way. You would find that God has many witnesses to the truth of the Bible if you would only examine them and listen to their evidence. But there is no witness so irrefutable as one whom He always keeps standing up and living, and moving before the eyes of mankind. That witness is the Jew. The question, however, about the exceptional and peculiar position of the Jewish people is one that never need puzzle anyone who believes the Bible. Once you open that book and study its contents, the knot which so completely baffles the skeptic is one that you can easily untie. The inspired volume which you have in your hands supplies a full and complete explanation. Search it with an honest determination to put a literal meaning on its prophetic portions and to reject traditional interpretation, and the difficulty will vanish. 
I contend that the peculiar position which Israel occupies in the earth is easily explicable in the light of Holy Scripture. They are a people reserved and kept separate by God for a grand and special purpose. That purpose is to make them in the latter days a means of exhibiting to the world God's hatred of sin and unbelief, and God's almighty power and compassion. They are kept separate so that they may finally be saved, converted, and restored to their own land. They are reserved and preserved in order that God may show in them to angels and men how greatly He hates sin and yet how greatly He can forgive and convert. Never will that be actualized as it will be in that day when all Israel shall be saved. Consider the very peculiar future prospects of Israel. The most distinctive condition of the Jews at the present time, we have seen, is most painful and instructive. They are still lying under the just displeasure of God. Because they despised His prophets and rejected His messages, because they would not believe the voice of His scriptures read to them every Sabbath day, because they killed the Prince of Life and were His betrayers and murderers, For all these reasons, His enormous wrath is come on them, and for a time they are cast off and rejected. Like Cain, they killed their holy brother, and like Cain, they are fugitives and vagabonds on earth and bear the mark of God's displeasure. They murdered the Messiah, and His blood is upon them and their children, and their eyes are still blinded. The veil is still over their hearts. They stand before the world at this moment like a light at the top of a hill, a perpetual witness that nothing is so offensive to God as unbelief, formalism, self-righteousness, and abuse of privileges. This is their present position. But what are their future prospects? What can they look forward to? Let us turn once more to the Bible to see. The history of Israel has not yet come to an end. There is another wonderful chapter still to be unfolded to mankind. The Scripture tells us expressly that a time is coming when the position of Israel will be entirely changed, and they will once more be restored to the favor of God. No Scripture in that book will ever be broken, no prediction will ever fail. In this book I read that when the heart of Israel shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. 2 Corinthians 3.16. I read that a day is coming when God says, I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. Zechariah 12.10. I read that in that day there shall be a fountain opened to the house of David, and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. Zechariah 13, 1. I beg you to remember that the primary application of these prophecies of Zechariah belongs literally to the Jews. I read also that God says to Israel in Ezekiel, For I will take you from among the heathen, and gather you out of all countries, and will bring you into your own land. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. 
and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you an heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments, and do them. And ye shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and ye shall be my people, and I will be your God. I will also save you from all your uncleannesses, and I will call for the corn, and will increase it, and lay no famine upon you. And I will multiply the fruit of the tree, and the increase of the field, that ye shall receive no more reproach of famine among the heathen. Then shall ye remember your own evil ways, and your doings that were not good, and shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and for your abominations. Not for your sakes do I this, saith the Lord God, be it known unto you, be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord God, In the day that I shall have cleansed you from all your iniquities, I will also cause you to dwell in the cities, and the wastes shall be builded. And the desolate land shall be tilled, whereas it lay desolate in the sight of all that passed by. And they shall say, This land that was desolate is become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are become fenced, and are inhabited. Then the heathen that are left round about you shall know that I, the Lord, build the ruined places, and plant that that was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. Thus saith the Lord God, I will yet for this be inquired of by the house of Israel to do it for them. I will increase them with men like a flock. As the holy flock, as the flock of Jerusalem in her solemn feasts, so shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of men, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Ezekiel 36.24-38 Once more I remind you that this wonderful passage primarily belongs to the Jews. No doubt the Church of Christ may secondarily make a spiritual use of it, but let us never forget that the Holy Spirit first caused it to be written concerning Israel. I would run out of time if I attempted to quote all the passages of Scripture in which the future history of Israel is revealed. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Micah, Zephaniah, Zechariah, all declare the same thing. All predict, with more or less detail, that in the end of this dispensation the Jews will be restored to their own land and to the favor of God. I don't say my interpretation of Scripture in this matter is infallible. I am well aware that many excellent Christians do not see the subject as I do. I can only say that, to my eyes, the future salvation of Israel as a people, their return to Palestine, and their national conversion to God appear as clearly and plainly revealed as any prophecy in God's Word. I will not offer an opinion concerning the time when Israel will finally be saved. No doubt there are many signs of the times which deserve the serious attention of all Christians, and it would be easy to list them. But we are always bad judges of anything that happens under our own eyes. We are apt to attach an exaggerated importance to it for the simple reason that we ourselves are affected by it. Let it be enough to believe that whatever God has said concerning Israel, God will do in His own good time. Don't be in a hurry to fix dates. Those last words of our Master are very instructive, 
when the disciples said, Wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? He answered, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. Acts 1 6 7. To study prophecy is useful and brings a special blessing, but to become prophets ourselves is not wise and brings discredit on the cause of Christianity. We should not pry too closely into the manner in which the complete salvation of Israel will be accomplished. We must avoid rash speculation and conjecture. My opinion is that Scripture seems to point out that Israel will not be restored and converted without an immense amount of affliction, affliction far exceeding that which preceded their deliverance from Egypt. I see a great deal in the words of Daniel, There shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time, and at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. Daniel 12, 1. I believe the words of Zechariah are yet to be fulfilled. It shall come to pass that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left therein. And I will bring the third part through the fire, and will refine them as silver is refined, and will try them as gold is tried. They shall call on my name, and I will hear them. I will say, It is my people, and they shall say, The Lord is my God. Zechariah 13, 8-9. But I freely confess that these are deep things. Without diving into too many details, it is enough for you and me to know that Israel will be restored to their own land and will be converted and saved. Let me close this branch of my subject with the Apostle Paul's words, O the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out! Romans 11.33 and let us grasp firmly the great principle recorded by Jeremiah, Fear not thou, O my servant Jacob, and be not dismayed, O Israel. For behold, I will save thee from afar off, and thy seed from the land of their captivity. And Jacob shall return, and be in rest and at ease, and none shall make him afraid. Fear thou not, O Jacob, my servant, saith the Lord, for I am with thee, for I will make a full end of all the nations whither I have driven thee, but I will not make a full end of thee, but correct thee in measure. Yet will I not leave thee wholly unpunished. Jeremiah 46, 27-28. Lastly, I ask you to consider the peculiar debt which Christians owe to Israel. I will touch on this subject briefly because it is one with which most people are familiar but it is one about which we all need to be reminded, and is of such importance that I dare not pass over it altogether. That every Christian is a debtor, and under solemn obligation to do good to his fellow man, is one of the great first principles of the gospel. Those who just go to church but never read their Bibles, or truly pray, or think seriously about their souls, may not understand this. They are apt to say with Cain, Am I my brother's keeper? Let everyone mind his own business. But those who are taught by the Holy Spirit, who feel their sins, who know their obligation to Christ, and have tasted the comfort of peace with God, 
will long to do good to others. They will feel for those who are living without God and without Christ. They will say, I am a debtor to Greek and barbarian, to Africa and India and China. What can I do to save souls and make others share my blessings? Now I ask you to seriously consider whether or not you are under special obligation to the Jew. There are three peculiar reasons why we should give more than ordinary care to Israel. 1. To whom do we owe our Bible? Who wrote that book which is a lamp to so many feet and a lantern to so many paths, and that provides comfort both in life and in death? I answer that every book in the Old and New Testaments, unless we exclude Job, was written by Jews. The pens that wrote the inspired words of the Holy Spirit were held by Jewish fingers. The hands used to forge this matchless sword of the Spirit were Jewish hands. Every time we read that wondrous volume whose nature and existence no unbeliever can explain away, and every time we draw out of it doctrine, correction, reproof, and instruction in righteousness, our eyes fall on matter which passed through Jewish minds. The texts which we live by now, the texts when sight and hearing fail us, that we will cling to by memory in death, and will be the staff in our hand when we go down into the cold river, these texts were first put down in black and white by Jews. Is this nothing? Two. To whom do we owe the first preaching of the gospel? Who were the first to go into the world and proclaim to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ? Again, I answer, they were all Jews. The men who first turned the world upside down, who deprived heathen temples of their worshippers and put to silence the philosophers of Greece and Rome, who made kings and rulers tremble on their judgment seats, and made the name of the crucified Jesus of Nazareth more influential than the name of Caesar, they were all children of Israel. They soon passed away. Many of them died for their preaching, and the lamp they lit was taken up by multitudes of converted Gentiles who walked in their steps. But the fact remains that the first to begin that blessed work, on which the very life of a church depends even now, the preaching of the gospel, were all Jews. Where would Europe be at this moment if it had not been for an invasion of Jewish preachers who obeyed the call to come over and help? Surely this also is something. And three, above all, what will we say about the fact that the Saviour, when He condescended to come into the world, was born to a Jewish woman? When that grand mystery that so many shrug off and hold back, the Incarnation, took place, when the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, the virgin who miraculously conceived and bore a son was a virgin of the house of David. No royal family of Assyria or Persia or Greece or Rome was chosen for this honor. That precious blood shed on Calvary for our redemption was the blood which flowed from the body of one who was a man in all things like ourselves except for sin, and took a man's nature by being born of an Israelite woman. The seed of the woman that bruised the serpent's head, the mediator between God and man, the almighty friend of sinners, when he took upon him the form of a servant, Philippians 2, 7, though equal to God, 
was pleased to take the form of a Jew. He took on him the seed of Abraham. Hebrews 2.16. These facts, I am sure, make up a peculiar claim on Christians. In the light of the Bible, the preaching of the gospel, and the person of Christ, I boldly say that Christians owe a peculiar debt to Israel. If there is such a thing as gratitude in the world, every Gentile church on earth is under heavy obligation to the Jews. But how can our debt be paid? That question can be answered in two ways. On the one hand, we may pay our debt directly by using every reasonable effort to bring the gospel to the Jews in every part of the globe. No doubt they need to be approached with peculiar wisdom, delicacy, and care. They are not to be treated as heathen, but as men who already hold half the truth, and who believe the Old Testament like ourselves, although they do not see and accept its full meaning. But experience proves that those who endeavor to lead Israel to the true Messiah, the Christ of God, with love and patience, will be encouraged. Now, as in the Apostles' times, though the nation as a whole remains unbelieving, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Romans 11.5. There is abundant encouragement to do what the London Society for Promoting Christianity amongst the Jews does and preach the gospel directly to the Jews. If Saul the Pharisee was converted and made a Christian, I don't know why we should despair of the conversion of any Israelite upon earth, in Europe, Asia, Africa, or America. On the other hand, we may all pay our debt indirectly by striving to remove stumbling blocks which now lie between the Jews and Christianity. I believe that nothing perhaps so hardens Israel in unbelief as the sins and inconsistencies of professing Christians. The name of Christ is too often blasphemed among Jews because of the conduct of many who call themselves Christians. We repel Israel from the door of life and disgust them by our behavior. Idolatry among Roman Catholics, skepticism among Protestants, neglect of the Old Testament, contempt for the doctrine of the atonement, shameless Sabbath-breaking, widespread immorality, all these things, we may be sure, have a deep effect on the Jews. They have eyes, and they can see. The name of Christ is discredited and dishonored among them by the practice of those who have been baptized in Christ's name. The more boldly and decidedly all true Christians set their faces against the things I have just named, and wash their hands of any complicity with them, the more likely they are to find their efforts to promote Christianity among the Jews prosperous and successful. And now let me conclude with a few plain words of application. I ask all of you to take an interest in and participate in the cause of the Jew society and the Jewish concern for the following reasons. Concern yourself with Israel because of the important position it occupies in Scripture. Cultivate the habit of reading prophecy with an eye to the literal meaning of its proper names. Cast aside the old traditional idea that Jacob, Israel, Judah, Jerusalem, and Zion must always mean the Gentile church, and that predictions about the second advent are to be taken spiritually, and the first advent predictions literally. Be just and honest and fair. 
If you expect the Jews to take the fifty-third chapter of Isaiah literally, be sure you take the fifty-fourth, the sixtieth, and the sixty-second literally also. The Protestant Reformers were not perfect. I say on no point were they so wrong as in the interpretation of Old Testament prophecy. Even our venerable authorized version of the Bible has many tables of contents in the prophetic books which are sadly calculated to mislead. When the revised version comes out, I hope we will see a great improvement in this respect. You should take an interest in a Jewish subject because of the times in which we live. You would have to be blind to not see how much attention politicians and statesmen are concentrating on the countries around Palestine. The strange position of things in Egypt, the formation of the Suez Canal, the occupation of Cyprus, the project of the Euphrates Railway, the drying up of the Turkish Empire, the trigonometrical survey of Palestine. What curious phenomena these are! What do they mean? What's going to happen next? He that believes will not make haste. I will not pretend to decide. But I think I hear the voice of God saying, Remember the Jews, look to Jerusalem. Then participate in the cause of caring for the Jews because of the special blessing which seems to be given to those who care for Israel. Few ministers of Christ have been so useful of late and made a greater mark on the world than the ring of well-known men that includes Charles Simeon, Edward Bickersteth, Haldane Stewart, Dr. Marsh, Robert McCheney, and Hugh McNeil. They were men of very different gifts and minds, but they had one common feature in their religion. They loved the cause of the Jews. In them was the promise fulfilled, They shall prosper that love thee. Psalm 122, 6. Take an interest in the Jewish subject because of its close connection with the second advent of Christ and the close of this dispensation. Is it not written, When the Lord shall build up Zion, he shall appear in his glory? Psalm 102.16. If the casting away of Israel be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? Romans 11.15. The words which the angel Gabriel addressed to the Virgin Mary have not yet been fulfilled. He shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Luke 1.33. Last, let us annually support that great institution, the Jews' Society, with our money and our prayers. Our money will be used well by an old and faithful servant of Christ who does Christ's work in Christ's own way. Our prayers are applied well if given for a cause which is so near our Master's heart. The time is short. The night of the world is drawing near. If ever there is a nation born in a day, that nation will be Israel. Let us pray for that blessed fulfillment and give habitually as if we really believed the words, All Israel shall be saved.